0: You could take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 6. As you know that we are studying through the Lord's Prayer, and we've been taking one petition, one Sunday at a time. And we begin with not a petition, but the way that we address God as our Father, and what a privilege that is. Now, were you paying attention to the songs that you sang? (laughs) That last song, I love it because it's so packed with good church theology. It talks about Christ speaking and building His church. The way the church gets built is through the Word of God. The way that you and I become more mature in Christ Jesus is through the Word of God. The way that we learn to handle the trials in life and the joys in life and the decisions in life is through the Word of God. This is what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1. This is one of my favorite verses that summarize a a philosophy of ministry. He said this We preach Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ Jesus. Here's what Paul is saying He has just explained that the mystery of the gospel is that Christ is in you. But for that mystery to be made plain in people's lives, it takes the preaching of Christ through Scripture to bring about Christian maturity. And because of that, I hope that you take times like this when the Word is preached and in our adult growth classes and on Wednesday evenings that you would make it your goal to never miss a time because you want to mature in Christ-likeness. You want to grow in the the fellowship of believers. We're we're a family together, and we can grow together. And I have have just loved being able to do that with you all. I took some time at the beginning of last week's message to say how much uh, Krista and I and our kids have just loved getting to know you all. And, and I mean that. I hope that you don't think that's some sort of political statement I crafted in my office trying to figure out, now, how can I, how can I come across to project warm uh, feelings to everybody? That's not what I did. Those really, honestly, uh, the Lord has just given us such a sense of, of welcoming among you and, and a sense of family. And I, uh, these times when we're worshiping together mean so much to Krista and me. And uh, we, we have loved it so far. And I, I think one reason why is because we've gotten to know people really well. Uh, we've made it one of our priorities to get into people's homes, or at least to let somehow let you, let our us into your homes at your, at your invitation, of course. And um, that has just been a joy to us. So thank you. And, uh, and I would hope that you all, if you feel like you've been coming to this church and you don't know people really well, and therefore you're not really sure if, if, you, if you like it, uh, just get to know people, and, uh, and get in people's lives, and open up yourselves to people. That's what we are. We're a family together, and uh, we can worship together and hear God's Word together, and that's my aim for us. I, my aim is that we would mature in likeness. and that's why we make the preaching of Scripture a priority in our services, and that's what we have the privilege of doing just that uh, during the remainder of our time. Matthew chapter 6, I'll just remind you uh, of the whole uh, emphasis of our series, is that Uh, It's kind of emerged out of a group of of three truths, and and one of those truths is that prayer is very central to the very purpose for which God created us. God made us to have a relationship with Him, And, and what is at the core of a relationship? It's communication, right? You have to communicate in order to have a relationship with somebody, and what do we call communication with God? What do we call that? Prayer. And so prayer is at the very heart of the purpose for which God has created you and me. It's it's to commune with Him. It's to have a relationship with Him. It's to thrive in that relationship with Him. Now, God has made us to have a relationship with Him, and to do that, we have to communicate with Him, which is prayer, but prayer isn't easy. Prayer is a battle. Prayer brings us face-to-face with the forces of darkness as Paul explains in Ephesians chapter 6 that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but there are these spiritual forces that we become aware when we try to get on our knees and pray to God. As we've said before, whenever you try to pray, you're suddenly blasted with a thousand different distractions and temptations. That's not just because we live in the age of media when we can have instant information on our phones and things buzzing and vibrating all the time. It's partially because of that, but it's mostly because... Prayer is a spiritual battle, but it's a good battle. You see, when we pray, we are doing that for which God created us, and that's why we've said if you can learn to pray well, you can learn to live well. If you can learn to pray well, you can learn to live well, if you can learn to bring your, your trials to God and, and present the things that you go through before the throne of grace, if you can learn to take your sin and your guilt and, and bring them before God and say, God, please forgive me, then you can live well. That's what life is all about. If you can learn to pray well, you can learn to live well. Would you finish that sentence? I'll start it. If you could learn to pray well, you can learn to live well. That's right. So that is why we're having this series on the Lord's Prayer. Now, we've gotten through the the address to God, our Heavenly Father. We've looked at the first petition, which is, hallowed be your name. Now we are going to focus on this petition, your kingdom come. I'm, I'm going to ask the Lord to work in our hearts and minds as we look at His Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we desperately need you. We don't naturally receive Your Word because we have a flesh within us that resists it. So do a miracle this morning and put down our rebellion. Would You comfort grieving hearts? Would You allow us to see the glory of Christ as our King and want no other King in our lives? Father, I pray that if there is anyone who is not owned Christ as king, who has not trusted in Christ as savior, that this morning, this morning, whoever it is would trust in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this coming Tuesday, just the day after tomorrow, it's a pretty big event in American politics, right? So we have what we call midterm elections. It comes at the midpoint of a president's uh, term Uh, And it can really change the rest of the president's term because you're electing governors and representatives. I I thought it was interesting that the petition that we're going to be studying this morning is your kingdom come. And I think that if we look at this in light of the upcoming elections this coming Tuesday, because it may be on the forefront of some of our minds, that that could actually help us understand better what we are praying for when we pray your kingdom come. So I thought about this this past week, if, if America were a perfect place, if everyone felt like everything was absolutely perfect, perfect laws, perfect leaders, really why would we need to vote? Like why would we even need to have midterm elections if everything were perfect? But yet the very fact that we go off to the polls every couple years it's saying something, not just about who we want to be voted into office, it says something about what we feel about government, and then it's not perfect, right? We, we, we feel like we want better leaders, better laws, better representatives. I mean, everybody longs for a better, if you will, kingdom. And if it's true that we, in this uh, wonderful country, wonderful nation, if it's true that we long for better laws, better leaders, a better kingdom, if you will, how true is it that in other kingdoms of this world, people would long for a better kingdom? I'm I'll to illustrate it with this. If you go into a certain museum in Washington, D.C., you can go into a room where you can see piles and piles of shoes. I've never seen it myself. I've seen pictures of it. You can see men's shoes and women's shoes. You could even see the little shoes of toddlers. These are the shoes that belonged to Jewish prisoners in Nazi concentration camps before they were carted off to executions. And when we think about these atrocities, doesn't it make us long for a better kingdom to come? The number of Jews systematically killed under Hitler's brutal kingdom is six million. Consider this other scene. If you were to visit a certain place in Cambodia, as I have not, but I've seen pictures of it, you can see piles and piles of human skulls, victims of Pol Pot's brutal regime in the 1970s. Hundreds of thousands of Cambodians were taken into the killing fields and forced to dig their own graves. And it would have been more merciful had the soldiers simply shot them, but instead they were forced to dig their own graves and be buried alive. Estimate a number of people killed, one million. Doesn't that make you long for a better kingdom? We could talk about other things. The massacre of Nanking, this often forgotten destruction of a city in China. From December of 1937 to January of 1938, Japanese soldiers systematically killed, raped, and tortured 300,000 of the residents living in that former capital of China. I read about this in an audiobook. horrendous. Doesn't this make you long for a better kingdom to come? We could talk about the slaughter of millions in Russia under Joseph Stalin, the African genocides. And this is not just a closed chapter of history. Just over a week ago, In Pittsburgh, hatred toward the Jews was displayed in the massacre of 11 people in a synagogue. I mean, doesn't this make you long for a better kingdom to come? And that's why I think this second petition here in the Lord's Prayer resonates deep into the hearts of every human being that that we think may a better kingdom come. But there is a serious problem with this petition because I actually didn't quote it right. I changed something. The petition is not, may a better kingdom come. The petition is, your kingdom come. And there is the problem with us as humans. It's a problem as wide as the circumference of the earth it's a problem as old as the human race, and it's a problem as close as your own beating heart. It's a problem with each of us individually. And that is that what we truly long for is, as fallen human beings is not just that a better kingdom would come, and it's certainly not that your kingdom has come. What we want as human beings is my kingdom come. See, we want to be kings of our own lives. We want to be the masters of our own fate. This is this poem uh, that was written in 1888 by a man named Henley. It matters not, he writes, how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And that seems to be the mantra of human beings. We want our own way. We want to be kings of our own lives. We want our own kingdom to come. the source of unfairness cruelty and oppression it's not just a government problem it's not just a democratic problem it's not just a republican problem it's a human problem it's a problem with with our hearts now this may be hard for us to swallow see i said that the source of unfairness and cruelty and oppression was a problem with you and me now it's natural for us to object and to say well man the The crimes of some of those leaders that you talked about are way, way outside the bounds of anything that I'm even capable of doing. I mean, you think about, I mentioned Adolf Hitler, you think about his sins. (laughs) I mean, they're so atrocious and so widespread, it seems like that's surely in a completely different category. But this hit me like a ton of bricks when I was uh, listening to an audiobook, The The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, which is a history of, of the Nazis, and it was talking about the sins that led to Hitler's uh, desire to take over Europe. What were those sins? Did he start out by saying, I want to massacre millions of people? No, here was a, here's, here's what his, the initial sins were, the initial uh, vices. There's pride. There was bitterness over the way that Germany was treated after World War I. There was racial bias. And I had asked myself the question have I ever been proud? Have I ever been bitter? Have I ever had bias? Are not, this, are not these sins common to humanity? This is what an evolutionary ethicist, a man who doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in Christ, this is what he wrote. Calling Adolf Hitler evil moves us no closer to an understanding of the causes of what he did. What he did may be worse than almost anything anyone ever did to anyone else in history. But it is all within the realm of human possibilities. This this man, again, doesn't believe in Christ, doesn't believe in the Bible, but he writes this. We must always keep in mind that these inhuman acts were committed by humans, inhuman acts within our behavioral repertoire. Everyone wants to be king of their own kingdom. That's the problem of the human heart. That is the challenge of this petition. When we pray, your kingdom come, we're actually praying for something that goes cross-grain to our own sin nature. Your kingdom come is not what the the human heart naturally cries. The human heart naturally cries, my kingdom come, and and this is what we do even when we can't accomplish the actions we want to, even, even when we want to reign in our own imagination. On a much lighter level, I encounter this at a playground. I was with my baby daughter, Karis. I was holding her and a little boy came up to me with a stick and he started waving it at me. So I picked up Karis, I was hold- you know, I just kind of brought her closer to me and he-, and he actually got that stick and he started scraping me on the arm with it. And I said, don't do that. <laughs> and he said, why? And I said, because it's mean. That didn't seem like it made sense to him. And then he looked at, he looked at my little daughter, Karis, and he held that stick. And I just saw this evil glint in his eyes. And he looked at me, and he obviously knew I was bigger. And you know what he did? He took that stick and in an up-and-down motion said, scratch, 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 without even without touching her at all, just in his own mind, wanting to be king of his own domain, even in his imagination. In Psalm 2, the psalmist writes, why do the nations rage and the kingdoms imagine a vain thing? Everyone wants to be king of their own lives. And that's the problem. Our natural longing is, human beings is not your kingdom come, it's my kingdom come. And so, if you feel in your heart any longing for that true, better kingdom, if you feel any sense that the problem lurks in your own heart, we need to understand what is meant by this petition. And there are just three questions we must answer. And these are the questions that I'm going to deal with in the re- remainder of our time. What is this kingdom that we're praying will come? What is this kingdom? Second, how does it come? And third, what does it mean to pray your kingdom come? So, what is this kingdom? How does it come? And what does it mean to pray your kingdom come? So first of all, what is this kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? Now, this is such a massive topic in Scripture that I I try to think of it this way. If, If the Bible were like a river then the topic of the kingdom of God would be like a swift current running along this river. And if we put our raft down in that current, it would take us from the very beginning to the very end. And, and that's what I hope us to hope uh, to do with us very briefly so we can see what the kingdom of God is from the beginning to the end of Scripture. And, and very basically, in its broadest sense, the kingdom of God, so that we could better understand what we are praying for when we pray, Your kingdom come, the kingdom of God is God's reign, His reign rule his dominion that is the kingdom of God in this broadest most general sense and we see this from the very beginning when God spoke the worlds into existence we see already his kingly authority on display we see that God said let there be light and there was light he spoke the worlds into existence what a king that could command something to come out of absolutely nothing. Now, you and I struggle with getting things done. We struggle with putting things together. We struggle with getting people to to, uh, to, to cooperate. If you oversee anybody, you know this struggle. Maybe you're in a position where if you were to give a command, people would obey you instantaneously. But, but think about what sovereign power, what royal authority there would be if you would not only give a command to people that exist, but you would give a command and things come into existence. I mean, when when God spoke the world into existence, I mean, everything from constellations to quarks, from from galaxies to atoms just snapped to attention. I mean, God is the king bursting right onto the very first pages of your Bible. He's demonstrating his kingly authority. He is the king, and that's what God's kingdom is in its broadest sense. It is God's reign. His rule, His authority, His sovereign command, He brings into existence things that have no existence. We see this in His upholding the universe at His command. Colossians chapter 1 says that in Christ all things hold together. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 26, listen to this, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, speaking of the stars, He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. Get this, this is God's sovereign authority, not just in the creation of the universe, but also in the sustaining of the universe. This is His authority. By the greatness of His might, and because He is strong in power, not one is missing. The reason why stars don't go missing from the night sky is because God is sustaining them constantly by His kingly authority. God is king. In Christ, all things hold together. We see this throughout the Psalms. Psalm ninety three, verses one through two. Just listen to these words as I read them. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Your throne, doesn't that ring with kingly authority? Is established from old of old. You are from everlasting. Consider what Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, one of the greatest kings that ever ruled this earth. He made this confession. I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is from Daniel chapter 4, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. By the way, when human beings, when their reason returns to them, they recognize that God is king and not themselves. That's That's the definition of a sane person. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Forget this, his dominion, this is the kingdom of God, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing before him. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? We see the kingly authority continuing in Psalm 96, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Do you get the idea that the earth is glad that the Lord reigns? I mean, the reign of the Lord is the greatest impetus for joy and celebration in the universe and it should be in our own hearts as well. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 99, 1. The Lord, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Throughout the Psalms, you get this celebration of God's kingly authority and the response of the universe of rejoicing and obedience. That's the kingdom of God. But... Not everyone responds that way to God's kingship. The problem throughout Scripture, in fact, the inciting action of the storyline of the Bible, is human beings' rebellion against the kingdom of God. We're trying to discover so we can know what we pray when we pray your kingdom come, what the kingdom of God is. And we, we see that the kingdom of God from the very beginning to the very end is the reign of God, the, the, the universal sovereignty of God over everything. But interjected into this picture is human beings who shake their fist in the face of God and say, no, we will not have you to be king over us. This happened in the very first chapters of your Bible. The first humans created by the king In the image of the king, for the glory of the king, with the good of the king, in the garden of the king, shook their fist in the face of the king and said, we don't want you, we'll rule our own lives, we'll be king of our own domains, we'll do what we want to do, we'll make our own laws, and God expelled them from the garden, but he gave them a promise. He said, one day the descendant of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, And one day the true king will come, a king that will actually reflect the justice and righteousness of the very throne of God, but it won't be for a long, long time because generations come and generations go. go. And in in the first chapters of of Genesis, we have this this, uh, coming together of humans building a tower to heaven, trying to invade the very throne room of God at their own power and by their own authority. And God, the king, looks down, scrambles their language, and scatters them. And then he calls a man named Abraham and he promises to Abraham that kings will come from you. There would be a line from Abraham. He would have a descendant named David. And do you remember the promise that God gave to David? David said that one of your, God said to David, one of your descendants will sit on the throne and his kingdom will be forever. There would be a forever king that would come from the line of David, but it wouldn't be for a long time. In fact, at the time though, it seemed like Israel was just on the cusp of the kingdom of God. I mean, David's son was Solomon, a man who was so wise and so wealthy, and he brought in wealth from worldwide. I mean, doesn't this look like the kingdom of God is about to emerge and and break on the scene in its fullness? But even Solomon himself reached forth his rebellious hand, took the forbidden fruit of multiplying wives and turning his heart after idols, and he too shook his fist in the face of God and said, I will be king of my own life. You will not reign over me. And this pattern continues over and over and over again, so much so that it becomes evident if you read the Bible from the book of Genesis to Malachi that there is something intractably wrong about the human heart. We are incurably rebellious. We need a king but we're rebels. This is what the book of Judges is all about. There's chaos and rebellion and murder and and uprising. And what is the theme of the book of Judges? That there was no king in the land. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. But a true king would come. A true king was promised. Generations passed. the surrounding kingdoms of Israel took little bites out of Israel until finally they took the people of God into captivity and it seems like at the end of the Old Testament this promise that a kingdom would arrive and that the king would come it seemed all but extinguished like the lamp was out the vine was was shriveled until finally there comes on the scene one who says this the book of Mark Jesus comes saying the kingdom of God has drawn near but it is not a kingdom that anyone was expecting You see, people were hoping for a kind of king that would be great. At this time, the people are in a kind of exile, even in their own land. The Romans have invaded them, and they feel like they're under the oppression of the Roman rule, and they were hoping for a king that would cast off the oppressive boot of the Romans, that would restore Israel to its Solomonic glory, that would push the boundary of Israel over to the uttermost parts of the earth, And in Jesus, they hear this message that the kingdom has come, and furthermore, Jesus begins to heal, and He begins to feed. And this one moment when He feeds 5,000 people at the same time, I mean, what are they thinking? What a king this could be! To feed us, to heal us. Let's make this man our king, this Jesus. But He set His face to go to Jerusalem, and there this promised king Had finally come to his own people in his own realm he was lifted up but not on a throne on a cross instead of people pledging allegiance to him he was cursed and mocked he was slapped instead of giving being given a royal robe he was given a robe only to mock him instead of a crown of jewels he was given a crown of thorns Instead of a throne, a cross. Instead of a royal retinue and sophisticated courtiers, he was crucified between two thieves. Instead of a life of reigning, a death of torture. What was going on here? I mean, all this anticipation from the Old Testament of a coming king... All this looking forward to the kingdom of God being a time when, as we read about at the beginning of the service, when the lion will lie down with the lamb and when, when the child will be able to put his hand at the hole of an adder and not worry about being bitten. I mean, all this time, it seems like it's about to come and then the very king that proclaims the coming of the kingdom instead of reigning as king goes to the cross. What is going on? Here's what's going on. This was the plan all along because the king knew that our greatest need, our greatest problem, is, was not the Assyrians, the people's greatest problem, not the Babylonians, it was not the Persians, it was not the Romans, it's not the communists, it's not the socialists, it's not the Democrats or the Republicans. The greatest problem, the human problem that we have is our own sin. The, the promised king came not to set up a, a structure of authority, not to, not to reign and rule on the earth. He came to, to, to conquer our greatest problem, and that is our sin. You see, what the king was doing was dying in the place of his people to pay the penalty for their sins. To bring about a change in our hearts so that we could say, I don't want to be king in my life anymore. I don't want to be my own sovereign anymore. I don't want to be my own ruler. I need a king. I need a perfect king. I need a king that loves me enough to die for my sins because my biggest problem is my sin. That's true of all of us. So that we can say, not my kingdom come, but your kingdom come. By dying for us, King Jesus dealt a death blow to the true enemy. And that's how this kingdom comes. So the first question is, what is the kingdom of God? And the kingdom of God is his rule and reign overall. But the kingdom of God is also in a more narrow sense Anytime human beings are gladly and, and joyfully submitting to him as king because they put their trust in him as, as savior, and with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom has already started to come. It comes now in the hearts of every man and woman and boy and girl who says, not my kingdom come, but your kingdom come and who recognizes as Jesus as Lord and Savior. This is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verses 21, 20 and 21, when He was being asked, well, where is the kingdom of God, and how is it going to come? And Jesus said, He said this, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. With the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of god has already begun to come it is as if the rays of the dawn of a new age have broken through the clouds of our present day and there is this proclamation that that whereas people naturally destroy themselves because they try to rule their own selves, yet there are some people who have submitted to Jesus as their king and said, I don't want any more to do with ruling myself. I need a king who died and rose for me. And there is the beginning of the kingdom of God, even within our own hearts. What is the kingdom of God? It is God's rule and reign, specifically when people gladly and joyfully submit to Jesus as king and one day it will come completely. (laughs) There there is a sense in which the kingdom of God has come now, already. But there is in a much fuller sense the kingdom of God is yet to come. And this will happen when Jesus waves his scepter and banishes all evil. When he wipes away every tear, and when he reigns as... As Lord of lords and King of kings. This is what it will be, as Pastor Kyle read from, from the book of Isaiah: this beautiful description of there being peace and harmony. And yet, this must will happen only after Jesus destroys sin and death. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 to 26, we're saying, what is the kingdom of God? So we can understand what we are praying for when we pray, your kingdom come. The kingdom of God is the worldwide reign of God, exercising His sovereignty throughout all history. The kingdom of God, in a more specific sense, is when human beings gladly submit to Him as their king. What's going to happen in the future, this ultimate sense of the coming kingdom of God? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24, Paul writes this, then comes the end, then comes the completion, then comes the fulfillment. When? When he delivers, this is Christ, when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when? After destroying every rule and every authority and power. Not good rules and authorities and powers, but evil rulers and authorities and powers. What are these? He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. who are his enemies? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That is the kingdom of God when Jesus has at this point in history Jesus has already crushed the head of the serpent so that so that sin does not need to have power over you any longer I mean you are free in Christ to live lives of righteousness you are free in Christ to live as Christ is your king but one day you'll be free completely from the presence and the power of sin and of death that is the ultimate coming kingdom of God when Jesus Christ will have finished his work as savior and redeemer and having banished death will hand the kingdom to the father and so when we pray your our father your kingdom come in an ultimate sense we are longing and praying that that day would come our father in heaven is what our prayer is your kingdom come And this will happen when Jesus returns to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. You're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to look at Isaiah 11. So would you turn there? I want you to get your eyes on this because what I'm saying, Jesus as the king conquering sin and death, crushing the head of the serpent, reigning as Lord of lords and King of kings, this will happen in an ultimate sense after he has defeated his foes. Isaiah chapter 11. The beginning of this chapter predicts, foretells the coming of this shoot from the stump of of Jesse that is a descendant of King David. And he's going to be filled with the Spirit in a way that no other person in the Old Testament had been filled. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. And how is he going to reign? Verse 4. With righteousness, with equity, And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. That has to happen first. And then, and then, when sin and death is banished, you will see things that you do not see on this earth. Naturally ravenous, flesh-eating carnivores dwelling peacefully. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Look at verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, something that every mother would just shriek at and come running. A child would play at the hole of a snake, yet they shall not hurt or destroy in all God's holy mountain. Why? Because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is the ultimate kingdom of God. And so when you and I get on our knees and with one another pray, Lord, may your kingdom come, we are longing. We are craving for that day when sin and death will be banished. And it's good for us to do that. It's good for us to do that because it reminds us that this World is not our home. When we look at, at the, 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 the cruelty and the injustice and the unfairness all around us, this is just sure within our hearts a longing for the day when, when a new heaven and a new earth, a place where righteousness dwells, a place where Christ is king, a place where it is said in Revelation chapter 21, He will dwell with them. He will be their God and they will be His people. That's the kingdom of God. So, What does it mean to pray your kingdom come? I think it's helpful to see three aspects of this. First of all, to pray your kingdom come must mean first that you have, if you're going to pray this sincerely, if this prayer is a prayer from the heart, it means that you must trust in Jesus, the King, as your Savior. I mean, to to truly want not my kingdom come, but your kingdom come requires a radical transformation in our hearts. It means that we will have realized that my kingdom is insufficient. My own rule is self-destruction and I need another ruler. I need another king. I need King Jesus. It means, that's what it means when we pray, your kingdom come. Consider the poem that I read earlier by William Ernest Henley It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Let me ask you a question this morning. Has that been your approach to life? Is it right now your approach to life? I know that poem has inspired many people, but is it a real way, good way to be inspired? You are the captain of your own soul. Can you steer your soul through the shadow of the valley the valley of the shadow of death? Can you forgive your soul of sins? Do you really want to be called the captain of your own soul? Do you want to answer God almighty for your own sins? No. My friends, we need King Jesus. We need a King who loved us so much that He died for us. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1 that those without Christ are in the domain of darkness, but that we can be transferred. You can, if you're not trusting in Christ, can be transferred or delivered into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So what does it mean to pray your kingdom come? It means first to trust in Jesus as King, but it also means this. It means to live your life in a pattern of of giving up every rebel territory to King Jesus. And this is where you and I as believers in Christ need to be continually. Does your life look like Jesus is king of it? Does your life look like you are honestly and genuinely and authentically longing your kingdom come and may it come in every corner of my life? Am I going to rip open every closet, take open every drawer and say, Jesus be king of this? be king of my marriage, be king of my parenting, be be king of my career, be king of my cell phone, be king of my laptop, be king of my relationships, be king of my money, be king of everything. Are you ready to do that? Because begging and praying, your kingdom comes, means relinquishing every rebel territory in your lives, And that's what we must do as believers. Continually submitting to Jesus as our king To seek first, what, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. It means to trust in Jesus as the king. It means to live in a pattern of relinquishing every rebel territory. What does that look like? You're in Isaiah chapter 11. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. When you live with Jesus as your king, when you are longing for that kingdom to come and praying sincerely, your kingdom come not mine. Here's what kingdom citizens look like, Matthew chapter 5 verse 3, poor in spirit. You don't have your own righteousness. Mourning over sin. Meek for they shall inherit the earth. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be satisfied. You're merciful because you'll receive mercy. Pure in heart, for they shall see God. Peacemakers, they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those, Jesus says, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the what? The kingdom of heaven. That's what kingdom citizens look like. And finally, to pray your kingdom come means to crave and to seek to advance the good news about the kingdom. I mean, there is a worldwide, universal dimension to this kingdom of God. That if you have been transformed by the King of Kings, you just want everybody to know about him. You're so in love with your King that you want everybody to know. I, I just want you to know what it's like to give up your own kingship and to submit to the one who only should be King of your life because he loved you so much he died for you. To, to pray, your kingdom comes means we want the gospel to be proclaimed in every continent, in every nation. In every city, in every household, that everybody would own Jesus as their king. That's what it means to pray, your kingdom comes. It means to do just what these psalms have said. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. There is an announcement of the kingdom of God, and there is the rising joy from the people that hear and accept that. That's what it means to pray, your kingdom comes. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and we will pray just that. But more than that we should be prepared to surrender every last bit of our heart's real estate to King Jesus our Father in Heaven may Your name be honored as holy And may your kingdom come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.